Now, I got this parish. Good parish. Large parish. Getting larger all the time, in fact. Now, you know, I just don't have enough space for all these people. To make less people. Pardon? Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 119 and 120, which begin with the Nord and Doctor offering suggestions on how to deal with Enola, and end with the Deacon being just a bit condescending to his captive. Our special guests today are Doug Greenberg from Rocky Minute and Johnny Powers from Austin Powers Minute. Hello, Rick and Julia and Johnny. Thank you guys for having us. And Johnny, always nice to see you. Yeah, always nice to see you too, Doug. Thanks, Rick and Julia. (laughs) (laughs) It is so good to have both of you back for what is a very contained episode. This is definitely the most inside episode that we've had so far as far as the scale of the space. Speaking of general scales, though, what are each of your experiences with this wide open watery world of Waterworld the movie. Well, I was thinking it was just my luck in a movie that's jam-packed with action pieces and these huge spanning sets and stunt work and everything. I get two minutes of just sitting there and talking. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't remember much about this movie from the time it came out, except the fact that it was ridiculed up and down back in the mid-90s. And I never knew why. So I never really had a desire to watch it because of that. So I've seen it bits and pieces of it over throughout the years, but I've never really sat down and actually watched it until you guys tapped me for this project. I don't get all the ridicule that it got back in the 90s. I don't know why it was beaten up so badly. Johnny, how about you? Well, okay. So I'm pulling a Liz. I literally have not seen Waterworld. So, um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a very insular two-minute look at this, which is a polar opposite of Doug. I probably would not have known what to do with a lot of action with no context of like watching the movie. So this is a little bit easier of an entry-level couple of minutes because let's put it into context since we were talking about age before we recorded. I was three when this movie came out. (laughs) (laughs) So like, mm, not a lot of runway with me watching this, so... Excellent. I like that we have a couple different perspectives to work with. Yeah. I love it. I think we lucked out with this pairing because we've got Johnny, who skews on the younger end of the spectrum, much like Enola in this scene. And we've got Doug, who is our resident interrogator, so to speak, based on his chosen profession. Oh, that's me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You need somebody interrogated. You call this guy right here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if you're going to get a weird mishmash of uh, opinions or ideas behind these two minutes. Excellent. I like it. Yeah, Johnny, to catch you up on context, Enola, played by Tina Majorino, who you may recognize from any sorts of things from Napoleon Dynamite to Veronica Mars, has been captured by Dennis Hopper, who is our bad guy, the Deacon, 
because she has a tattoo on her back that leads to Dryland, and he wants to find Dryland, like most people on Waterworld. And so as we start this clip, the deacon is arriving. He has hopped out of his deacon mobile on the burned-out wreckage of their ship called the Dees, and he approaches two of his lieutenants, the Nord and the Doctor. And the deacon wants a status update on the situation. The Nord says that they're not getting a lot of information out of Enola, and I want to jump into the official novelization because it offers a little bit more information than the movie dialogue does. What's the latest, the deacon said. Not a word, the Nord said. She just sits there and leaks out of her eyes. Outside the cell where she couldn't see, something awful was being prepared for her. The diseased-looking doc, his gas canister cocktail maker cart wheeling behind him, feeding the tubes up his nose, had a pufferfish in one hand and a hypodermic needle in the other. The hypo had been plunged into the pufferfish and the doc was withdrawing from it a bile-like fluid. A little shiver from the liver, said the doc cheerfully. Quite toxic. She'll give up all her secrets with this. Yeah, the deacon said, or it'll kill her. He waved at the doc to move aside. I'll try talking to her first. You know how I am with kids. So in the movie, we see the doc hold up a hypodermic needle. It is full of something. And the book reveals that it is, I think it's called tetrotoxin from a puffer fish. That's it's quite like a lethal. well-known toxin, right? <laughs> like that rings a bell to me. Yeah. It's not good. There's places around the world that chefs learn how to cook pufferfish mm -hmm. to where it's just enough poison that it like kind of trips you out while you eat it, but you don't die. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that so, an episode of The Simpsons? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember there was. Where he ordered a pufferfish from a questionable place. It was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And it wasn't fine. Yeah, and he thought he he went to sleep that night thinking he was going to die and then yeah. ends up up the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the point here, though? I mean, do they want to interrogate her or try to get information out of her or they just want to up and kill her and take the map? They absolutely want information about this tattoo on her back. They assume that she knows everything about it. Mm -hmm. I question that assumption and the reasonableness of it. If she had any secrets, if she knew anything about that tattoo, that tattoo on her back, um, <laughs> why wouldn't she be on dry land already? That doesn't make any sense. If she knew where dry land was, wouldn't she go there? And wouldn't she have already gone there? It's on her back. So like, great, cool. She has it, but like, she really doesn't know what it looks like. Yeah, that's true. That's Number true. Number two, She's a child. Like, I mean, great. I know that, like, she's doing a great job at acting <laughs> in this movie. But it's like, realistically, how much would a child be able to be like, let's direct you to dry land because I know I'm like the prodigal person who has this tattoo on my back and let's just go. No. To be fair, when we get later on in the minutes that you gave, she has a very philosophical conversation with him, but still she's a child. <laughs> Yeah, she is very mature and intelligent for a child, but she's still a child. She still has the memory span of a child, which is not terribly long. And what is she, about 10 years old? Yeah, about 10. Okay, so I have a 10-year-old son, Perfect. and I know if he was in the middle of the ocean with a map, <laughs> and it was <laughs> left up to him to guide us to... No offense, buddy. If it was left up... <laughs> If it was left up to him to guide us to dry land, I wouldn't put that kind of trust in him. 
<laughs> I don't know why I haven't thought of this before, but does anybody remember the TV show back from 2005 called Prison Break about a guy who tattoos mm-hmm. the schematics to a prison onto his body so that he can help his brother escape? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like a Fox show, right? Yeah. yeah. I remember like the name of the show. I never watched it. I think I watched the first season and they don't break out of prison at the end of the first season because I think they go for five. They got to pace themselves. Yeah, they got to pace themselves. But yeah, the idea that, oh yes, all of the information he needs is tattooed on his body, but he needs someone else to read that information off of his body. Right. Just can't see some of it. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if they were inspired by Enola. I kind of like the idea of... (laughs) tattooing schematics on your chest but doing upside down so that only you can read them (laughs) and to everybody else they look like gibberish (laughs) it's like those chalk paintings on the sidewalk that are like 3d and they only make sense if you're standing in a specific spot Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a great idea for a tattoo that it only (laughs) makes sense from your own perspective but apparently only if you're looking to prison break or find dry land right yeah and also don't put anything on your back Right. Like it all has to be on the front. <laughs> right. Well, in the movie Memento, too, the guy tattooed all kinds of information on him that was key to finding his wife's murderer. And some of the stuff was like, you know, he would tattoo it on himself. So it was from his perspective. So it would look upside down to somebody looking at him, you know, if it was on his thigh, but he can read it. I'm going to be perfectly frank. And I think that if I saw somebody like walking around with those style of tattoos, I'd be like, I'm going to walk over here. <laughs> Something's going on up here. <laughs> You got a conspiracy brain, and I don't know if we can be friends. <laughs> so, like, we're good. <laughs> Listen, they cannot trust the Notes app on their phone. They need to tattoo it on the body. <laughs> because Notes app are deletable and editable. Mm-hmm. But your yeah. skin isn't. That's <laughs> nope. true. The FDA has an entire page all about pufferfish venom, and they list some of the symptoms of ingesting too much of it. The symptoms start within 20 minutes to two hours after eating the toxic fish. Initial symptoms include tingling of the lips and mouth, followed by dizziness, tingling in the extremities, problems with speaking, balance, muscle weakness, and paralysis, vomiting, and diarrhea. In severe intoxications, death can result from respiratory paralysis. For more information on tetrodotoxin, you can go to a book called The Bad Bug Book, which is available online. Is that a book all about natural toxins in the world from eating animals? Yeah. It's a publication by the FDA. Uh Uh-huh. The Bad Bug Book is a handbook of foodborne pathogenic microorganisms and natural toxins. Okay, if you're preparing for the post-apocalypse, you need that book. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so that's that's Julia's book. Yes, it is. (laughs) I got my magnets. I need the toxin book. On that same vein, I feel like people are getting a lot more comfortable with eating puffer fish and this is a weird like sidebar also julia information for you to know there are conservationists pleading with people to stop licking poisonous frogs i would hope so i don't know if there's just one type of frog but there's like different photos of them anyways it's like a dmt style trip when you lick these frogs wasn't that also in an episode of the simpsons I know Probably. it was an episode oh. of the, it was an episode of Family Guy. Yeah, with where the trippy frogs. Toad licking was an epidemic in town, and so the main character d- 
disguised himself as a high schooler to infiltrate the cool kids and get them to stop <laughs> licking toads. Yes. They sang a whole song about it. I just remember pupils getting real big and like <laughs> bugging out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jumping off of that idea of psychotropic reactions to toxins, I looked at the Wikipedia page for Truth Serum, and a lot of things that were tried to be used as Truth Serums were psychotropic to put people in an altered state of mind. According to that page, there is currently no drug proven to cause consistent or predictable enhancement of truth-telling. Subjects questioned under the influence of such substances have been found to be suggestible, and their memories are subject to reconstruction and fabrication. When such drugs have been used in the course of investigating civil and criminal cases, they have not been accepted by Western legal systems and legal experts as genuine investigative tools. In the United States, for instance, it has been suggested that their use is a potential violation of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. That whole, I'm not going to perjure myself, I'm going to stay quiet, I have that right sort of thing. I would also think you'd have to willingly and knowingly give up that information, and but if you're psychologically tricked into doing it, it doesn't seem like a fair statement. I'm glad that the deacon dismisses the option of using fish poison on Enola because, A, she's a child, but also you don't necessarily want to depict, hey, we're injecting our child actor with something weird, and yeah, it's fake for a movie, but when you're watching it in the context of the story, it's like, ugh. She's already been tattooed. Let's not start injecting weird things into her body. <laughs> yeah, I wondered uh, at the, um, I don't know, can't think of the word, of, you know, tattooing a young girl. Yeah. Right. We know she was like three-ish when Helen acquired her. With the tattoo already on her. And the yeah. tattoo was already on her. So, yeah. yeah, she was a baby, a toddler when she was tattooed. And yeah, you're right, Doug. That is questionable. I've watched parents struggle to do anything with a toddler, let alone hold them down long enough to put a full tattoo on their back. Right. Mm -hmm. When you tattoo a three-year-old and then they grow up, what happens to the tattoo? Right. It like stretches right? and distorts. So mm -hmm. how is that an accurate map? Right? I saw a Reddit post a couple of weeks ago. It was like a relationship advice board. And you know, those are always so drama-filled. So I love reading <laughs> them. And... The question was about this mother of newborn-ish, still baby twins. And her relationship request was about the relationship with her in-laws, who were very upset with her because she tattooed one of her twins. She put a dot on the bottom of the foot of one of the twins because that twin requires medication. Okay. So it's very important that they know the difference between the twins i thought you were going to say that she so she could tell them apart and then yeah. that was just going to be really <laughs> tragic right <laughs> and everybody was very upset with her okay reddit posts like comments are really mostly you're speaking to your own people generally yeah so a lot of them just support what your views already are and then there's the polar opposite where everybody hates you. So all you're getting is super positive reinforcement and super negative reinforcement. There's very little in the middle. So everybody was on her side. But yeah, she tattooed her kid. Well, yeah, we've seen Knives Out. We know what happens when you swap labels around and get confused. Right. That's like an extreme case. So to me, that would be like a case-by-case -case basis of like how bad is this child's like issue. Yeah. 
because it's like if literally like within a hundred feet something happened and they would die because of it like absolutely but it's also like there are medical bracelets right put a bracelet because if the child's medical conditions were severe enough important enough and i don't remember what they were that kid's probably gonna be wearing a medical bracelet for their entire life anyways yeah and then there's also like new technology too that's very specific you can create your own medical bracelet where it's like a a scan yeah. And so, like, you, you have it, and it will list everything that you need to know about this person. Like, emergency contacts, allergies. It's not just, like, how, like, I guess, in my mind, when you think medical bracelet, there's, like, by the blood pressure machine at Walmart or whatever, there's those weird, like, little ones that just say diabetes or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's right. not like that anymore. You can literally have somebody's full medical history so that you know. Yep. Much more like a hospital bracelet. Mm-hmm. Like, hospital bracelet... This hasn't been every time I've been in the hospital, but sometimes it has a bar scanner on it. When somebody comes in, they confirm your name and your date of birth, and then they yep. scan your bracelet. And that tells them exactly what they are doing there. Okay, I am here for lab work. I need this much blood. I am here to administer meds. I am here to refill the saline. Listen, I would vote for somebody to chip me so I don't have to keep going through. Like... When you go to a new doctor, like go to, and oh they're like, my goodness. what about you? Like, just chip me, scan me mm-hmm. here. Take yeah. it. I don't need it. <laughs> I think there's also something to be said for the size and complexity of the tattoo. Like putting a dot on a baby's foot is a lot different than covering their entire Pull back, back <laughs> with a Yakuza tiger tattoo. Right. And this tattoo, it's at least four inches across. Oh. You think? I don't. Oh, oh you're talking, oh, you're talking <laughs> about a Nola's tattoo. I was like, Nola's tattoo. Not the baby. Or not that big. How can you have a four inch wide tattoo? No. Okay. Yeah. A Nola's tattoo. It's like four inches across. Yeah. And it is almost solid black. So it's not an outline. This took time. Tattoos mm-hmm. are painful. It is Wait. literally stabbing you with a needle and getting ink into your skin. Did you do this on purpose? Because Doug and I both have tattoos. Is that why you asked us? <laughs> that is our secret. That is our secret. Let's say Damn that you. is exactly why. Because <laughs> neither of us have tattoos. <laughs> so you just want information out of us. Yes. It's like yeah. getting tattooed. So How old I are you? know that different parts of your body feel different levels of pain and discomfort when you're getting a tattoo. Do either of you have back tattoos, like upper back? And how was that? Fine. I mean, Pain tolerance levels depend per person. Of course. Because my mom is a champ, and I don't see her ever hurting when she gets tattooed. But me, mine is black and white, or black and shades, and mostly shaded. So I'm assuming that's what Enola's would have been like. And I almost fell asleep. And it was four and a half hours <laughs> Okay. to get mine. So I didn't feel a lot of pain. I will say this about Enola's tattoo, too. It's a circle that's almost completely filled in with black. And if you see a tattoo needle for wide coverage, they don't use a single needle. They use like a a row of like six or seven needles to cover that area. And I mean, to get it that opaque black, they have to go over and over and over and over and over it again until it gets that black. You know, otherwise it's just going to show a bunch of streaks through, you know, you can't have any skin coming through. Mm-hmm. That sounds so. like a nightmare. <laughs> it's like a you have to overcolor like a coloring book. Mm-hmm. Right. At least on a coloring book, you can like change the opaqueness without 
bleeding out afterwards, but for getting uh-huh. a tattoo, your body expels the ink mm-hmm. as it's like healing. So they have to oversaturate your body with ink so that when it purges it, you're not like, wow, I spent all that money for nothing. There it goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And to get this type of coverage, is that something that would have been done in one session or over a series of sessions? It could be done in one session. One? Yeah, but not you're not talking half hour. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's, that's probably a good three, four hour back piece. So for a child, less than three, I would imagine she would have had to have been sedated. Cause, or, or multiple sessions, I guess, in her case. Yeah. Because just sitting still for that long. You just generally don't want to have like any, before you go in to get tattooed, you don't want to have any medication or alcohol that would maybe affect it. Because like, I guess you have to be careful about what you're taking because you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to take a bunch of like Tylenol and I'll be no, because it's a blood thinner. So it's actually going to hurt you in the long run. Very true. Same thing with alcohol. So people getting drunk and go getting tattooed, like- I don't know what sedation would do in that case, but you also want to err on the side of caution there, too. I also want to debate the age that she was when she got it, because, I mean, you guys are just throwing out the age of three there. But, I mean, do we form memories at the age of three? And now, if if this truly is a map to a dry place, and she is maybe, perhaps, from a dry place, she would have memory of being from that dry place if she was three years old when she was cast out. So she could have been even younger two or one when she was sent away from the dry place, if she is, in fact, from a dry place. Yeah, we know that she was three when she was picked up by Helen. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily know how long between when she left dry land and when she was found by Helen. The main clue that we have that Enola has buried memories of dry land are the things that she draws. Right, the horses and stuff. The horses and the trees and all of this other stuff yeah i don't think she directly remembers dry land i think she has these vague images maybe show up in her dreams so like it's in her head she just doesn't have conscious access to it yeah we did also suppose at one time that she isn't remembering these things that she draws that she is psychic and she's seeing the future (laughs) okay twist (laughs) <laughs> in an already unbelievable movie, Julia, you've gone too far. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anola's inability to really remember a lot of this stuff clearly is going to become a bit of a stumbling block in this scene that we're watching today. The deacon comes in. He has chosen to go with the good cop angle of interrogation. He walks in, finds Anola that she's been chained up, and so he commands his underling to unchain her he calls him a barbarian tells him to get out of here and then he uses a phrase he says snakes alive come on out of here you big nasty animal you it made me wonder okay snakes are usually something you find on land and so i was like well i know sea snakes are a thing so i looked it up on wikipedia because i love doing that sea snakes are mostly found along the coasts of the indian ocean as well as throughout polynesia and australia and up through the sea of japan All sea snakes have paddle-like tails and may have laterally compressed bodies, which make them look like eels. But unlike fish, they don't breathe water, so they are mostly found on the surface. 
And along with whales, they are among the most completely aquatic of all air-breathing vertebrates. And among this group are species with some of the most potent venoms of all snakes. Some have gentle dispositions and bite only when provoked, but others are much more aggressive. And currently, 17 genera are described as sea snakes, comprising 69 species. Wow. It's interesting that sea snakes are in the Indian Ocean area because that is the nearest-ish ocean to Mount Everest, which is, in fact, dry land. Yeah. I just get such a kick out of the idea you're floating in the ocean on a raft or something to that effect, and out of nowhere, a snake slithers up to you on the surface and Mm -mm. bites you because it's one of those Mm -mm. aggressive types of snakes. No, that's not okay. (laughs) okay. Of all the things that could get you. Devil's advocate here. Because they stick closer to the coastlines, good news, you're close to dry land. <laughs> There's good news and bad news. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to die, but like, at least you were like within 30 miles of coastline. <laughs> right. The deacon does not know what a snake is. He has never seen a snake. Or he might. See snakes. Yeah, but then that would have meant they were close to dry land this whole time. Yeah. And he's just a dumb butt who has no idea of direction right (laughs) this is another instance of the deacon hearing words and phrases and sayings from the random videotapes that he has of golf competitions and thinking that it makes him sound cool so he uses them but he's not doing it correctly because the the saying is not snakes alive if i'm not mistaken i might be wrong about this but it's sakes alive isn't it not snakes alive or saints alive oh saints alive okay i just know it's not snakes alive is not the saying is not the exclamation we still use expressions today that were that came up in like shakespeare's time and they might evolve throughout the years so maybe saints alive became snakes alive yeah maybe he's just a dumb butt who knows (laughs) now i'm trying to think of anything that like we say now that would be like i don't even know what that is oh i'm sure there are plenty of newfangled phrases that the young folks are using that in 20 30 years we're going to be like oh that is so dumb do people even say fleek anymore no 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 i think the turnover is faster and faster now i think it's the turnover is absolutely accelerating I'm going to ask you, do you know what a glizzy is? Wow. Is that current or is that already old? It's current. Oh, my gosh. So what is it? It's a hot dog. Oh, my god. Wait, 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 wait. a hot dog? (laughs) How? Like, what is the bridge, the gap for me? I don't know. By the time this comes out, that will already be gone. (laughs) Probably. Okay, so here's our listener interaction for the week. Listeners, go on Twitter and tweet at Helen Zaltzman and tell her that we need a episode of The Illusionist all about, what is it, Glizzy? (laughs) Okay, there we go. Listeners, have at it. (laughs) There's a podcast, it's called Manners, Please. And they do specials where they take those sayings that we don't know where they came from, and they figure out where they came from. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am 90% sure I've heard an episode where they talk about glizzies. So have fun <laughs> <Yeah>. with that. <laughs> Probably. I've seen galleries online, you know, that are like 
common phrases that we use and the origins thereof. So next time I come across one, I'll share it with you guys. Excellent. <laughs> I don't think Glizzy's on there, though. Probably Johnny. not. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. A little more time. One phrase that I guess I'm not surprised to hear coming out of the deacon's mouth is rub-a-dub-dub as he I... reaches over and grabs Enola's Why are you ankle. not surprised? I mean, it seems like something an old person bat. would say. <laughs> <laughs> so he stated a few moments ago that he's great with kids, but he's very awkward with her. He's trying really hard and he's he's trying to be friendly, but he is very awkward from our standards. So I think he's just taking what little tiny bits he knows about kid-related things and offering them to her. Like rub-a-dub is a line from... A nursery rhyme. A nursery rhyme. And there are kids all over the D's. Yeah. So, of course, he's heard that from the nursery rhyme passed down from parent to child. Yeah, so he thinks that that would be entertaining to her, is what I get. And it's not, because it just comes across as creepy. Yeah. And when that doesn't work, he resorts to offering her a cigarette because there is nothing like a good smoke when you miss your mom, and apparently it's <laughs> never too young to start. <laughs> He's also offering her things that his children in his flock would be attracted to, like a cigarette or a sit on his lap. Yeah. At the very tail end of last week's episode, we saw the deacon. He hopped out of his deacon mobile, and three kids ran up to him, and he gave them all cigarettes. My goodness. How like do they really... have a population problem? How are they not all dead? <laughs> it's, it's like a really messed up Santa Claus situation. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And they love him for it. They adore him. Well, it's like they think of well, what is the apocalypse going to look like, you know, down the line? And how can we make it shocking? Let's offer kids cigarettes because, <laughs> <laughs> because nobody would ever do that nowadays. Yes. So I was interested about this never too young to start thing. And among the nations of the world, 18 is the most common age when someone is legally allowed to start purchasing cigarettes without restriction. Some nations do skew older, like the United States. The federal minimum age is 21 to purchase. But there are some nations that skew younger. Djibouti and Bangladesh both have their age set at 16. But apparently there are some nations, a handful that have no age restriction on purchasing cigarettes. Those nations include Morocco, Congo, and the South Sudan. All places that are just wonderful places to visit that I just can't wait to go to. I don't want to say that Morocco is the Las Vegas of Africa, <laughs> but it is the first thing that comes to mind. As much as I'm sure people in the South Sudan don't want me to think this way, when I think of South Sudan, I kind of think of child soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Congo the, too. The idea of soldiers being paid with cigarettes comes to mind as well. I'm sure there are many great things about Congo and the South Sudan. I don't want to slander them by saying it's nothing but kids smoking cigarettes with AK-47s. But it, I am terrified of them. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not saying it's not that. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> like Morocco. Yeah, okay, fine. Morocco is like, okay, out of all of those things, that's an actual like tourist destination. So you're like, that's interesting that... It's kind of like, you're five, here's some cigarettes. Like, what? Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I could take my family on vacation to Morocco, and my five-year-old could run down to the corner store for me and buy cigarettes. Yeah. Not even for me, for themselves. Well, that's a morally gray area, too, because now 
there's still places in America that like corner store people will light your kids buy cigarettes for you. Yeah. I read on a website all about vaping that apparently the popularity of smoking among 13 to 15 year olds in Morocco is going down because the popularity of vaping is going up. Why were you on a vaping website? Because I was doing research, Johnny. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the good thing about running a podcast is that you can explain anything away by, I Just was research. doing research. <laughs> sure. Tell that to my Google search history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someday... We'll have as a guest on this podcast the NSA officer who's in charge of listening in to all of my Zoom calls and oh my checking goodness. my search history. And Feel we bad can get for there. my Google Watcher. I Google work stuff too all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a medical biller, so I Google diagnoses to see if they qualify for whatever we're doing. So Ooh, I don't want to see pictures associated with those. Right. Sometimes I have to, like, research bizarre diseases. I would just, like, stick post-it notes up where, like, normally the photos would go so I could yes. just read blurbs instead and be like, I don't want right. to see any of this. Thank you. <laughs> like, all I need to know is it doesn't make it hard for this person to walk. That's all okay, I need great. to know. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, mix that with, you know, Googling snake meat mm-hmm. and neurotoxins. You know, it's just your casual Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Doug, when you're talking to people out on the beat, do you ever get into these situations where you try and like create a familiarity or diffuse a, a bit a bit of tension by like offering some sort of middle ground offering? Yes. In fact, I don't know if you guys know this, but cops have lost the art of speaking to people. <laughs> and speaking to people is one of our main jobs. I mean, there's a skill. It's actually a skill called de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. I mean, I've I've never policed like I was better than anybody. I would always treat people with a modicum of respect as long as they showed me the same. So I am pretty good at this skill of verbal de-escalation where I could take somebody in a hot situation and kind of talk them down just by soothing tones and like kind of trying to relate to them. And, and like you said, finding some kind of common ground instead of playing the authority, like, you know, do as I say, you know, type of thing. Yeah, finding common ground is one of those skills. I mean, even if you're lying to the guy, who cares? Like, the guy could be flipping out. You kind of get to the bottom of it, and and he's not mad at you. He's just mad because, you know, his landlord shut off his water bill. And be like, oh, guy, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I got a shitty landlord, too. I got to deal with him all the time. And boom, now you're kind of on a level playing field with the guy. You know what I mean? There's that, and that's important. And I I don't want to say interrogations, you know, because... (laughs) If you have somebody under arrest for committing a crime, I mean, that whole good cop, bad cop thing doesn't work. But if you're just on the beat, like you said, Rick, you know, talking to people is is a skill that seems to be getting lost on us day by day. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, hey, I know you like drawing. Here's a marker. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I would. (laughs) But I would. I want to switch over to this idea that. When the deacon recognizes that Enola likes to draw, he offers her what looks to be a highlighter-type marker. In my opinion, I feel like in the post-apocalypse, a crayon is a superior drawing medium to a highlighter marker. Yes. Absolutely agree with you. (laughs) Totally. Because, first of all, 
any color other than yellow is an abomination. (laughs) (laughs) Neither of these are yellow. Therefore, abominations. Second of all, highlighters, markers, whatever in general, require some sort of moisture to make them work. Mm -hmm. And these are hundreds of years old. I guarantee they don't work. How do they still have their caps? (laughs) Great point. My thing was like, great, he's like showing her these, but they're like dried out. They're just like symbolic. If you were doing something like crayons... They're still finite, right? But, like, they have a a longer longevity than a highlighter. And in my mind, you could actually make crayons in a post-apocalyptic world because they're Mm -hmm. wax-based. So you can recreate that medium of art, but you can't make highlighters. Mm -hmm. I want to dive back into the book. So the deacon has just offered Enola a cigarette, and she refused. The book continues. And he showed her an object that had a similar shape, her crayon. A smoker had pried it from her fingers on the trimaran, and she'd thought it was long gone. How dearly she wanted it back. She could decorate these horrible bare walls. But she kept her face stony blank. She gazed at him, eyes big and unblinking, thinking about how the mariner would behave if he were this crazy man's prisoner. It's yours, the deacon said, and he took a deep draw on his smoke stick. If you can help me with this one problem, she said nothing. In fact... I believe I have a whole box of these, crayons they're called, in my storeroom. Would you like them? She said nothing. I should explain, the deacon said reasonably. And he goes on to talk about his congregation. But I like in the book how he offers her her crayon back. It's none of this, oh, I've got markers. It's like, no, we took this from you. You can have it back. I have more. You should cooperate. Why didn't they use that in the movie? Why did they take highlighters from a PA and mark them up with Sharpie and try to pass them off as something that... Is alive in a post-apocalyptic world. Right. They already had a janky box of crayons on the set. I agree. I think the crayon return and then promise of more is so much more powerful than these markers. Enola does show a little bit of interest in the markers because she's desperate. She has a compulsion to draw. I swear. She has a supernatural compulsion to draw. So she is interested, but if it were crayons, if it were her crayon, I think it would be so much more powerful. I wonder if they avoided it being her crayon because we had that earlier scene where Helen took the crayon from Enola, threw it at the Mariner, and then Helen forbid Enola from going after the crayon. So it's established over the course of the story that the crayon has left Enola's possession, so they wouldn't necessarily have it when they kidnapped her. But even if they didn't offer her crayon to her, still the box of crayons would have been much better. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Aesthetically, especially. Because you're right. These highlighters are not attractive. They're janky. He offers her a cigarette, something that she couldn't possibly be interested in. But crayons are like her commodity. I don't know. I feel like that would have held more weight, definitely. I do find it really funny, the idea that she is addicted to crayons as if she's doing that dave Chappelle thing where she's like scratching at her jaw like you got any got any more of those crayola buddy got any more of those crayons (laughs) as i mentioned when i was reading from the book the deacon's gifts have been largely refused and so he tries to explain to enola his situation that he's dealing with here on the d's their ship he says i got this parish it's a good parish It's a large parish. It's getting larger all the time, in fact. Now, you know, I just don't have enough space for all of these people. 
and Anola fires back, well, why don't you just have less people? Okay, no, 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 no. She does not get credit for that. It's dumb. <laughs> Her suggestion is just have less people, i.e. kill people. <laughs> she's t- but okay, she's 10. It's not a unique thought. She's just like, okay, less people means more space. Okay, great. Yeah. Like, the people are already here. Yoda's line about uh, how wondrous the mind of a child is. <laughs> like, oh, man. So simplistic. I don't think that Enola is necessarily saying that you need to have a purge on the Ds <laughs> in order to make more space. I think she's more responding to the statement getting larger all the time when she says, maybe just don't become larger all the time. Basically, Enola is one of those people from the 70s and 80s who is way into zero population growth. (laughs) I recently discovered that there is a thriving group of zero population growthers on Reddit, of course. There's a name for them, and I can't remember what it is. Really? Because I searched on Reddit for zero population in the search bar, and it didn't come back with any groups that are specifically... Oh. that in the title yeah because they're codenamed sir they're, they don't want people to know that right <laughs> i found them because i saw a meme about choosing not to have kids and i know i joked earlier about having kids but we have chosen not to have kids so it was a funny meme to me so i followed it to its board and quickly realized that these people weren't so much it's okay to choose to not have kids they were, you are stupid if you choose to have kids. And I'm mm. like, ah, that's a little far for me. That kind of like airs on the side of like eco-terrorism to me. Right. Now it's getting, you're extremists. Exactly. Like it's an extremist view. Yeah. No, that's too far. I just don't want to be looked down upon by society because I chose not to have kids. I have no desire to look down on anybody else. Yeah. Like you have an obligation to the world to continue its growth like get out of here i'll do what i want yeah, yeah right i think rick and i would fit in better on the atoll than the d's yeah yeah talking about the difference between what she thinks and what he thinks it's also i haven't seen water world this is probably going to be like the dumbest thing i've ever said <laughs> no it won't be the dumbest i still one up that later on in life <laughs> because it's all like symbolic of christianity like a deacon a parish like all of that his mentality is that of a monotheistic organized religion of expanding it, mm-hmm. spreading the gospel, indoctrinating more people, right? So you want to always expand, growing larger all the time, right? That's the whole point. So her saying that is like flying in the face of like his lifestyle, his like religion, his whatever messed up brain situation going on in a post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> Whereas I think, like, in her, that would be more of, like, a agnostic, like, atheistic point of view. You hit the nail right on the head, because the deacon, in hearing Enola say, have less babies, he asks pardon, and she says, on the atoll, babies are born only when there's room, that way there's food and hydro for everyone. So it's very pragmatic. There's a very practical reason why they don't have just babies and babies and babies on the atolls because people got to eat. And the deacon responds by calling it a quaint suggestion 
and it doesn't really play here considering we are, in fact, the Church of Eternal Growth. See, what we need is more land for more people. And that's why he wants dry land. He wants to cover it with people, just like you said. On the surface, which might sound like he's coming from an altruistic place, you know, it's for the people. However, the methods are like extremists and terrorists because they, if you don't join us, you die kind of thing. We take what is yours to support our cause. But none of it, like Johnny went off on a theological background, but none of it is based in, I guess, a religion, so to speak, but not centered around God or anything. Like one of their prophets is the captain of the Exxon Valdez. (laughs) In that term, it's like a cult. It's a cult religion mentality versus like an actual like organized what we think is religion. Yeah. He comes off as coming from that kind of place. Like we're a church. You know, you can call anything a church. Mm -hmm. Right. He's got the vocabulary and the hallmarks of a religion, but it's Mm -hmm. not. It's a cult of personality. Yeah. But that's the most persuasive form of a cult is that it's rooted in history and reality, even Mm -hmm. if it's argued in a way that makes it sound more outlandish. So he's got a good thing going right now. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) He does. I don't think there's necessarily a good longevity for the deacon's parish here, because if something would ever happen to him, technically the Nord, the blonde guy from the beginning of this clip, is the second in command. But he has spent so long as number two, and he does nothing but drink whenever he's on the Ds. So I don't think he would necessarily be as good a leader as the deacon if anything were to happen. We talked about this a lot with Fury Road, and this is definitely a parallel where it's a cult of personality dressed up as a religion. Mm -hmm. And the problem both Immortan Joe and the deacon have is they've not properly set up a legacy. And if they die, it's going to crumble. Well, let me just uh, speak from a little real world situation. Um, Let's just say that there is a specific job that I know is headed by, we'll call him a chief, okay? And the number two is the guy that always has done the chief's bidding. When the chief retired and the number two took, stepped in as the chief, that society (laughs) crumbled and is continuing (laughs) to crumble as we speak because he knew how to take orders and to do the bidding, but doesn't know how to lead. That's all hypothetical though. Yeah. I went down a bit of a well with the zero population growth movement because I didn't know a lot about it. The zero population growth movement started in the late 1960s, and it became a prominent political movement in the U.S. as well as parts of Europe with strong links to environmentalism and feminism. Yale University was a stronghold of the ZPG activists who believed that a constantly increasing population is responsible for many of our problems. Pollution, violence, loss of values, and of individual privacy. Founding fathers of the movement were Paul Elrich, author of The Population Bomb, and Richard Bowers, a Connecticut lawyer and professor Charles Lee Remington, Elrich stated, the mother of the year should be a sterilized woman with two adopted children. Which seems a bit extreme. Anything that is forced is extreme. Yeah. I like that you pointed out that it was really popular in like Western civilizations. I'm going to get heavy for a second. Yeah. There's a certain level of privilege that goes with choosing to not have kids. Not only that you have a semblance 
of body autonomy. I say that as a semblance because you know that we don't always have full body autonomy as women. But you have the choice to just be like, I'm going to go to the doctor and potentially have an abortion or potentially be able to have contraceptive access, like all of those things. And our society doesn't necessarily favor now the need to have more children, like an egalitarian sort of society where you need kids to work on the farm. Yeah. Or it's more advantageous for you to have kids. I don't think that that's an advantage to have it on the D's, but you see like the difference in the zero population idea of like a privileged society versus an underprivileged one. And you take that for granted a lot of times. The idea of zero population has a lot of value for those societies where you don't need to have X amount of kids because you have to work this amount of land manually. And you're going to lose a higher percentage of them. Yeah. If you have a high infant mortality rate. Yeah. You know, you got to keep trying and you can't just stop it too because you've got 40 acres and all you've got is a mule to work it. So you need everybody's hands in. But if you live in a modern society where, okay, your job is behind a desk and you can do that one job and be as efficient as you necessarily need to be, you can understand why people from those Western societies would say, okay, let's not boom the population out of control. And you look at the atollers. They have a limited amount of food. They have a limited amount of space. Everything is very well balanced. Whereas the Ds, Deacon needs soldiers. Deacon needs rowers. Deacon needs manpower to go out and affect his will. So it's understandable why he always encourages this growth because he's going to take those kids and as soon as they're old enough to ride a jet ski and shoot a gun, that's what they're going to do. Right. And we've seen a couple of battles that the smokers have put on and they're losing lots of people. Partly because the deacon doesn't value them as individuals. All he sees them as is soldiers Mm -hmm. and replaceable. They're replaceable because they have large population growth. And it just circles around and around and around. Whereas the atollers, there is very little circling around. There's advantages and disadvantages to both models. But to me, on the flip side of the zero population growth, now you're seeing in nations that are more advanced, like modern societies that there are a lot of pencil pushing desk people work from home kind of (laughs) vibes like in Japan and now seeping into the U.S. The population is aging and there's nobody to take care of them. Right. So same problem with Deacon, right? If you send all your kids out on jet skis with machine guns and you blow them up, (laughs) who is going to take care of your aging population? Right. I guess the idea is not to have an aging population. <laughs> then send out, the, send out the adults on jet skis, not the children. You Come put on. the aging population down in the oil well to check the level. That guy sitting oh, down in the gas tank best. is one of my favorite characters. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> His final line is awesome. And on that topic of aging population and setting up a legacy, so Rick and I have chosen not to have kids, but... That comes with its cost. I think about this a lot. What happens when we get older? We do not have kids who can take care of us. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have at least part of my retirement plans banking on the complete collapse of society (laughs) or an asteroid coming to take us out or 
any number of things. We love hardcore contingencies. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, you plan to die before you get old. Yeah. You plan for society to collapse and you, something yeah. to happen to you before you hit 65. <laughs> Look, one of your nieces and nephews is going to step up just to be part of that rich ass Uncle Rick and Aunt Julia's will. <laughs> right? Like, I there will make a deal with any child, any child in the whole world. You will be the inheritor of our wealth if you take care of us when we get older. <laughs> That's fair. There you go. Yeah. When I picture my retirement, I kind of picture Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, just down there shoveling big shit into furnaces and <laughs> hoping to escape on a train someday. I don't know. I'd like to be the dwarf on the giant's back, but I'm probably just going to be the guy with big killer branded across my chest. <laughs> You're going to be the giant with the dwarf on your back. Right. There you go. <laughs> I have no intention of surviving a post-apocalypse. Why do you say that? You're the one prepping. (laughs) (laughs) The very first Mad Max, society's like starting to go downhill and things just aren't great. I'm willing to put up with that. But if things get real, like there's no more land left or there's zombies, especially if there's zombies. If there's zombies, shoot me right away. I do not. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to become a zombie. I don't want to see people I love become zombies. Kill me right away. I don't want to live in this much difficulty. I live a very spoiled life. My life is very comfortable. I do not want that to change. I do not want to live like this, like Waterworld. This is awful. In that first Mad Max movie, you can still go to the shop and get soft serve ice cream. By Mad Max 2, that is completely off the table. (laughs) So that is my bar. That's the deal breaker. Ice cream. Is ice cream still available in a post-apocalyptic world? If yes, Julia stays. If no, take her out back. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Because okay. while I'm not a, the biggest fan of ice cream, it signifies a lot of things. There's a certain level of frivolity still available. Yes. Electricity, cows for milking, the availability of things like salt and flavoring. Once those go away, like if you take salt away from me, Seriously, take me out back. I don't think salt is going to disappear. It's a natural resource. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing we're not judging the level of apocalypse by when you go to McDonald's and ask for soft serve and they almost always tell you that they can't because the machine's broken. Right. Then we've been in the post-apocalypse for years. (laughs) For years. Well, on that cheery note, I think it's time for us to wrap for this week. (laughs) Doug and Johnny, it's always good when two drifters meet that something be exchanged. Could you let our listeners know where they can find more of your stuff on the internet? You can find me pretty much anywhere that Austin Powers Minute is available. We're on Spotify, pretty much any podcatcher now. I use Spotify mostly, so that's kind of what I (laughs) lead with. I have the Electric Psychedelic Pussycat Swingers Club on Facebook. It's a group for all the listeners. I dislike Facebook. That's probably the only reason I still have it besides our group chat among all of us right here. <laughs> and I'm working on Gold Member. So Gold Minute. So the planning <laughs> is happening. I have the art. It's going. So Nice. And I'm one of the hosts of Rocky Minute. You can find all of our episodes on the same feed with two other shows. The Sylvester Stallone Fan Podcast Network. What we're doing now is we're re-releasing our seasons one and two as we catch up with our production of season three. So go look for the Sylvester Sloan Fan Podcast Network. We're halfway through the re-release of season two. By the time you hear this, we hopefully, hopefully will have started releasing season three. 
which is our coverage of Rocky Three. As for us, you can come back next time. We will see the Deacon continue his interrogation, hoping to find the answer to Enola's tattoo. She disappoints him and finds herself chained once again, and we rejoin Helen and the Mariner on the burned wreckage of the Trimoran. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 60. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.